want to take a survey of the church. We've been doing it at every service and getting some really interesting results. But in order for us to do this properly, I'm going to need you to be honest, okay? We're going to have to get a little vulnerable and we're going to have to be a little bit honest, but it's okay. You're at church. This is a safe place. Do me a favor and raise your hand if you are perfect. Anybody? Raise your hand. Any, any perfect people? Okay. Uh, going once, going twice. Anybody? No? No? Okay. Um, well, then this sermon is for the rest of us, okay? Because what we realize is nobody's but we pretend we are, don't we? At least we want people to, to think that we're perfect. See, we love to share our, our victories, but we don't really share our defeats. Like whenever you meet somebody for the first time, when you introduce yourself, you don't tell them about the worst day of your life, do you? No, you tell them the best about yourself. Or whenever you post on social media, you'll take like 60 selfies. Okay, you'll post one. But you don't post the other ones where you're making a horse face, do you? You're like, no, I'm not going to post that one, am I? Or this week was back to school for the kids. And so you took a picture and you put it on Facebook and everybody's in the comment section going, oh, they're so adorable. What you didn't post is the meltdown they had 30 minutes before, did you? No, you don't post that. Or maybe you, you tell your friends, I got a new job. And everybody's like, yeah. What you don't tell them is why you had to get a new job. Because you lost the last one, right? No, we love to tell people about our wins, but we don't really like to talk about our losses. We love to have people think we're perfect, even though we all know that we're, we're not. Raise your hand if you're perfect. Now, what about churches? Our church is perfect. You know why? Because you're here. It was great until you showed up, and then you ruined everything, right? Because you're not perfect. And we have to understand something, that a church is not a, a building. A church is not an event. A church is not a program. A church is what? It's people. And people aren't perfect. Therefore, it is unrealistic for you to expect a church to be perfect as well. Here's the big idea for the message today is there are no perfect churches because there are no perfect people. Now, if you're new, you might be like, well, I think redemption's perfect. At least it has been so far. I mean, I, I pulled up last week and the parking team was popping and everybody was greeting me at the door and the kids' check-in was so smooth and the pastor's hilarious. Coming back next week because this church is, is perfect. You're new. Give it some time. I'll disappoint you eventually. Stick around a little bit longer and you're going to get offended and you're going to get upset. And then all of a sudden our church is going to be like the last church you went to. And then you're going to go to another church and then they're going to disappoint you too. Because maybe the problem's not with the church. Maybe the problem is with us. Because the church isn't perfect because people aren't perfect. We're going to see this play out today in the book of Acts. If you have your Bible, we're in Acts chapter 6. And here's the sermon title for today. Why are there no perfect churches? I just imagine this scenario playing out on Facebook. Somebody gets on Facebook and they're like, I have been to a dozen churches in this area and I just can't find the perfect church. One church, the coffee was too cold, and the other church, the check-in took too long, and another church, the pastor was too loud, and the other church, the worship was too long, and I couldn't get out on time, and blah, 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 blah. Why are there no perfect churches? Next time you see that, just send them this sermon so that way they can lower their expectations a little bit. Because the truth is, is that there are no perfect churches because there are no perfect people. And we're going to see this happen today in the book of Acts, chapter 6. We're going as a church, walking through the book of Acts, verse by verse, line by line. And today, we come across Acts 6, where we realize that even the early church wasn't perfect. Do you know why? Because they had people. So let's learn from the church so that we can apply this lesson to our hearts. Here's what it says in verse 6.1. It says, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, so the church is growing, people are meeting Jesus, people are getting saved. 
the church is growing. A complaint, there's a word, uh uh-oh, somebody found the internet, didn't they? (laughs) A complaint. Now, I know church people don't complain, right? You never heard of a church person complaining, but hypothetically, it happened before, so maybe it's going to happen again sometime. We see that a complaint was raised by the Hellenists against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the 12 summoned the full number of disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick up from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom then we will appoint to this duty. But we, the pastors, the apostles, will then devote themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man who was full of faith and the Holy Spirit, And Philip, next week, we're going to do an entire character study on the life of Stephen. He's probably one of the most influential and important moments in the entire book of Acts. It's very amazing. I can't wait to teach that. It's going to be talking about the mindset of a mature Christian based on the life of Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. And Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Pumbaa. And Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, and there they sat before the apostles and they prayed and they laid hands on them. Here we are. We are in Acts chapter 6. And so far in our study of the book of Acts, we have seen the best days of the church. I mean, it has been amazing watching God move in incredible ways. I mean, it's just victory after victory and win after win. It's like they can't lose. Pentecost happens. Peter preaches. Win. 3,000 people get saved. Win. Then they baptize them. Win. Evangelism, church planting, healings, miracle, win, win, win. It's like DJ Khaled. All they do is win. Just win, 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 win. That's all they keep doing. And then we get here to Acts chapter 6, and guess what? They take an L. They lose. There's a failure on their part. All of a sudden, people start realizing, "Uh uh-oh, the church isn't perfect. I love the Bible so much. Do you know why? Because the Bible is honest. It doesn't just show us their victories. It shows us their defeat. We don't just read about the apostles just being on the mountaintop, but we also see them down in the valleys. We see their best days and we see their worst days. Now, people are like, the Bible is written by man. If you were to write a Bible... Would you put your failures in there? No, you you put your victories. But yet the Holy Spirit, through Luke, said, no, we need to include this. And, And here's the reason why. Because we might admire them for their strengths, but we learn from their weaknesses. Like any other leader, right? You admire somebody because of their strengths, but you really connect with them over their weakness. That's what makes them real. That's what makes them human. That's where you begin to learn from them. See, we, we love to celebrate the victories, but we learn the most through our failures. Right? We love to see other people's strengths, but what you really learn about a person is get to know them in their weaknesses. That's where you'll really learn who a person is. And I love that the Bible includes this, this failure, this mistake that the church made, so that way we, 2,000 years later, we can learn from it. And so here's the lesson that we learn. No church is perfect, not even the church in Acts. Because there's this myth that says, we need to be like the, the early church. Because the early church, they had it all together. They got everything right all the time. They were just, you know, singing hymns and skipping. And everybody was kumbaya, la, la, hallelujah all the time, Right? No, it actually says that there was some big problems that they needed to learn how to address because they weren't perfect. It was a church filled with real people who had real problems learning to follow a real Jesus. And so they had to learn what to do when they discovered that their church isn't always going to get it right. 
which I think we all need to learn this lesson as well. And so here's what I want to do. I want to give you four reasons why a church is not, not perfect. Number one is we have to identify the problem. Here's what the, the problem is. It, look, it says, now in these days, the disciples were increasing in number. Yay! People meeting Jesus. People getting saved. Marriage is being restored. Hope is being found. Friendships are being formed. The church is growing. And then somebody starts complaining. Man, 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 man. This church doesn't do it for me, right? Why? What was the problem? The Hellenists rose up against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected by the daily distribution. Now, here's what I always tell you. In order to understand the text, we have to understand the, the context. So we need to understand why this was a problem. So the Hebrews were the more traditionalists, and the, the, the Hellenists, well, they were people who were newer to faith. The Hebrews, they grew up in Jerusalem, which is where the church is at in this moment. The Hellenists, they're Greek. So they're not from Jerusalem, but they've moved there to be a part of the growing church. They're still Jewish, but their cultures are different. And so when they come and they all of a sudden start trying to figure out how do we do church together, what happens? Problems. They begin to experience problems. And the problem was is that the Hebrews who had been there a long time were not making space for the new people. They weren't welcoming the new people, taking care of the new people. They weren't concerned about the needs of the new people. And so the people who were coming to the church, they didn't feel like they belonged in the church. This still happens in churches all across America even today, where the old guard is not being welcoming to the new guests. And then the new guests come in, they don't feel accepted, they don't feel seen, they don't feel loved, so then they leave. This happens still in churches today. So let me bring this into a more of a modern context. Let, let's say it like this. Like, a single mom decides she's going to come to redemption. She's got three kids. She works two jobs. She has to decide, am I going to spend my gas money to go to church, or am I going to go buy groceries this week? And she decides, I'm going to go to church. And she comes to church, she checks her kids in, she finds a seat right about where you're sitting, and as the worship team starts playing, someone walks in, sister so-and-so, taps her on the shoulder and says, excuse me, you're in my seat. Do you think she's going to feel welcomed? Do you think she's going to feel loved? Do you think she's going to come back? Do you think she's going to be a little offended? She's going to be offended. And that's a, that's, a, that's a valid concern. But this happens even here. It's true, but it does. A few years ago, we had a, a, a family actually leave our church. And here's what they said. They said, y'all just let anybody come to this church. <laughs> I said, excuse me? Yeah, we're, we're, y'all just let anybody come in here. I said, well, maybe we need to rethink that policy because somebody let you in. <laughs> and they left, and our church continued to grow. But here, here's what we, we have to understand is that the devil hates the church. And he knows that if he can't destroy the church, he will divide the church. What have we seen over the last six chapters? The enemy attacking the church through persecution. Arrested, beaten, thrown in prison. If you don't stop talking about Jesus, we're going to kill you. And every time they've experienced persecution, the church has grown in size. And so now the devil's trying a new technique. He says, if I can't destroy them, I'll divide them. By getting them to fight against each other, so now they're no longer a threat to me. Here, here's what you need to understand. Is the greatest threat to the church is not the world, it's the church. Right? The world is not a threat. Jesus says, take heart for I've overcome the world. The world's already been overcome. The world is not our enemy. The world is our mission. People are not our enemy. People are our purpose. We're called to be his witnesses to a lost and to a dying world. We are the salt of the earth. We are a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. The world is not our greatest problem. You know what it is? Us. 
the devil can't destroy a church. Here's what he's doing. He's going to divide the church. By getting the people in the church to get so busy arguing with each other, they no longer have time to witness to their friends. I mean, we've seen this happen in churches, have we not? Where all of a sudden, somebody gets their feelings hurt, and somebody gets offended, and then gossip starts happening, and then all of a sudden, this fraction rises up against fraction, and they're upset and angry, and they have to have a committee meeting, and then a board meeting, because somebody disagrees on the color of the carpet. Or because they disagree on the way that the, the branding is going to look or what food they're going to serve at the potluck. And this person sat in my chair and all of a sudden, da, 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 da. And the church begins to be so busy focusing on fighting each other, they no longer have any energy to be the church to a lost and dying world. The greatest threat to the church is not the, ch- the world. The greatest threat to a church is the church. So all of a sudden, the, the problem gets to Peter and the apostles recognize, hey, guys, we got a big problem on our hand. We need to address the issue. What I love about this is they don't ignore it. They don't excuse it. They come up with a plan to solve it. So do churches have problems? Yes, but that's not an excuse. To ignore it, it's a reason to solve it. So what they do is they come up with a plan. So first we see the problem, now we see the plan. What's the plan? Here's what he says. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples. Hey, family meeting, family meeting. Church gathering, what's Peter going to say? As the leader, he would step up and he says, it is not right that we should give up the preaching of the word of God to serve tables. Uh Uh-oh. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we will then appoint to this duty. What's the plan? There's a problem. You fix it. Peter says it's not my job. It's not right for me to quit doing what God's called me to do to solve your problems. You've recognized the problem, you be a part of the solution. If you see the need, you're the one maybe God wants to use to meet that need. My pastor used to do this to me all the time when I was a new Christian. Like I, I, I was 22 years old and I felt a call into ministry on my life, and I would go in, and I had such a critical attitude towards the church. And all I would do is see the problems all around. And I would go to the pastor and say, Pastor, there's, there's problems. And you know what he would tell me? He would say, do you want to help fix them? I'm like, well, that's not my job, right? You're the pastor, I'd be like, hey, we, we don't have a young adults ministry, and I need some place to send my friends when I lead them to Jesus. He's like, that's great. Would you like to lead it? Oh, no, 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 not me. Not me, no, right? Because I wanted other people to fix the problems that God showed me rather than recognizing that I might be the solution that my church has been looking for. And so Peter steps back, and he says, hey, guys, I can't do everything around here. Because when we read this, here's what we originally think. We think the problem is the Hellenists versus the Hebrews. That's actually not the problem. That's just a symptom. Imagine like this. If you have a a runny nose and a a cough, is that your problem? No, that's just the symptoms. What's the problem? You got a cold. Treat the problem, you'll fix the symptoms. The real symptom here is not the Hellenists versus the Hebrews. Read it again. The real symptom is this. 12 people are serving the entire church. Commentators will tell us that we're about three years into the book of Acts, and the church has grown now up to 20,000 people. 12 people trying to serve 20,000 people. You think that's possible? Like, it's amazing to me it took six chapters for them to start complaining. If it happened today, it would only take like six minutes. Like, hey... Somebody come and help, right, fix this, right? But the real problem is that people were going to church but not being the church. The real problem is that people were coming to a service expecting to be served rather than recognizing that they're called to serve others. They had consumers but not contributors. People were spectators, but they were not participators in the church. And so Peter says, hey, guys, listen, we're going to have to change some things around here because I can't be everything to everybody all the time, everywhere. I'm one man, and I'm limited in what I can do. 
And so I'm going to need you to step up and start doing some stuff around here. That, that's, that's, that's what he says. I just imagine like Peter, right? It says that he was preaching in the temples day by day. So every day he's preaching a sermon. Then when he finished the sermon, he takes, you know, he, he puts on an apron and he runs over and he starts chopping some onions. And then he starts serving out the food. And whenever the food's finished, all of a sudden he runs back home because he has marriage counseling. And then he has to lead a small group. And then there's worship practice with the choir on the evening. And then he's got to meet with somebody and do therapy with them. And then, oh, he's got to do a parenting seminar. And all of a sudden, he, he has to start writing this, uh, this, 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 this book that he's working on. And then he's got to run over here and serve this person and meet this need. And all of a sudden, he's like, I can't do it. I feel this on a spiritual level. As a pastor, I, I really do. Like when me and Ashley started the church seven years ago, we started the church out of our, our home. We had an apartment in Old Town, first time the church ever gathered. We made like 30 baked potatoes and fed some friends. And then as the church started growing, everything happened at our house because we didn't have a building. And so leadership meetings were at our house. Small groups were at our house. We had freedom ministries at our house. And then if anybody needed marriage counseling, they'd come to our house. And if anybody needed crisis intervention, they'd come to our house. And then sometimes people would just randomly show up at our house. <laughs> we counted 50 people would come through our home on a, on a weekly basis in the first year or two of our house. Now you're like, Byron, for you, that sounds amazing. Have you met my wife? <laughs> she barely talks to me, let alone the rest of y'all. <laughs> But not only that, everything the church owned was in a trailer in the backyard at my house. And then on Sunday mornings, we'd unload the trailer and we'd drive it downtown to Crockett Street. We'd have a little team to show up. We'd set it all up. I'd unload the chairs. I'd be on a, I'd be on a, a ladder five minutes before service starts trying to fix the projector. Or we're not going to have slides that evening. And then I would greet the guests and pass out connect cards. I would be the host. I would take up the offering. I would lead communion. Then I would preach a sermon and then I would get off. And then if you filled out a connect card, I would take you out to coffee that week because I was also the guest follow-up person. And I was working two jobs. I was in college full-time, and my wife was pregnant with her first child. The best day of my life is when Matt Stevenson, I don't know if you met him or not, he's a hero here. He said, you know, Byron, I can drive the truck on Sundays. <gasps> For real? Yeah, I can do that. I guess, and here's the keys, and don't call me. <laughs> so, <laughs> best thing in my life, because here's what I recognized. If we want the church to grow larger, we got to grow it smaller. If a church gets large, it's got to grow small. In order for a church to get larger, it has to grow smaller. How does it, how does it do that? Here, here's the solution. By empowering people to do the work of the ministry. That's the answer. A church solves problems when they begin to empower people. And so as a pastor, I, I have, if I don't step back sometimes and let other people lead, I'm robbing the church. I'm, I'm hurting the church. Because in many times, pastors become the lead of the, the lid of the organization because, I don't know if you know this or not, but pastors have control issues. At least this pastor does. And I have to recognize that I have an option. I can either have control or I can have growth, but you can't have both. And in order for a church to grow, the pastor has to learn to let go of things, trust others, raise up leaders, and then release them to do the ministry. This is why redemption is experiencing the, the growth that we are. Because we're learning that as our church gets bigger, we have to be very intentional about keeping it small. So how, how do we do that? We do it three ways. Number one, serve teams. Number two, small groups. Right, a small group is where you find your people. Who is excited about small groups this week? Hey, let's give it up. Everybody in a small group, over 200 people in small groups all across Southeast Texas. A small group is where you find your people, but a serve team, that's where you find your purpose. Right, we want you to have both, people and a purpose. You're going to use your gifts. You're going to learn to serve you're going to be a part of something that's bigger than yourself. 
And in that, you're going to meet new people. And the church is going to feel small because you're, you're with your people and you're serving your purpose. But what we've noticed is this, that as the church continues to grow, people are still falling through the cracks. Like across four services, it might have a small church feel, but last week we had 600 in attendance. The average church in America is 70 people. Okay, so we're not a large church, but we are a growing church. And so we realized that it's not happening organically. Like when the church was smaller, it happened organically. Like people would just bump into each other and then they would just build friendships and it was natural, it was organic. But as the church gets larger, it's not as easy. So we have to be more intentional. And so what we came up with is something called next steps. What is next steps? Well, it's your best way of getting involved in the church. You learn who we are, we learn who you are, and we see who God's called us to be together. So it's for new people to meet new people. You'll sit at a table, you'll share a meal, you'll learn a little bit about the church, but most likely, you're just going to meet the person who's sitting next to you and you're going to begin to form relationships with new people. Because the truth is, if a person's been coming here for five years, it's hard for them to, to, to build relationship with new people because the capacity of friendship is already filled. So it's difficult for them. And so what we've learned is that new people build relationships best with new people because y'all are both looking for a purpose and a place. And so at Next Steps, we plug you into a serve team. We plug you into a small group so you can meet your people and you can fulfill your purpose. That's how the church grows larger and smaller at the same time. Now, at this point, some people are going to start pushing back. And they're like, well, Byron, you just care about numbers. That's all you care about. You just want a large church, big church, have a nice mega church. That's, that's all you're concerned about is growing the church. You just care about numbers. Okay. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, numbers. It's in the Bible, guys. <laughs> right? Acts 2 says 3,000 people were baptized. You know what that means? Somebody had a clicker. <laughs> and, then we read, and then we read right here, Acts 1, it says, and the disciples were increasing in? Every number has a name. Every name has a story, and every story matters to God. Listen, we count people. You know why? Because people count. You're like, I'm not about the numbers. Okay, after service... When you go check your kids out, let's say you have four and we only give you three. <laughs> you're like, hey, where's my kid? And you're like, hey, we don't, we're not about numbers here. We're not about numbers. Right? You're like, well, all of a sudden you're about the numbers, right? You're about that six-digit settlement you're about to get because you sued us because we lost your kid. Right? The way that we care for people is by counting them because what you measure gets multiplied. And if we're not counting people, we're not going to be able to care for them. And, and, and people push back. There's this sentiment right now in our, in our culture where people have this idea that big church bad, small church good. Big churches are so evil and corrupt and watered down and unbiblical. And the small churches, man, that's that's where, God, that's, that's where God is moving at. Listen, as a pastor traveling the country, I, I've, I've been to some of the largest churches in America, and I've met some of the best leaders and pastors. And I've also met some of the worst. Some churches, I'm like, I love this place. Some churches are like, I'll never go back to that place again. But then I've also been at some really small churches that were filled with the most narcissistic, self-absorbed, controlling religious spirit ever. And it's just destroyed the church. And then I've been at small churches where after I finished preaching, I ate so much banana pudding. Oh my God, it was amazing. <laughs> it was incredible. Like Nana's banana pudding. Oh, Lord Jesus, help us, right? And here's what I've discovered. It's not the size of the church that matters. It's the heart. It's the heart of a church that matters. That's what matters the most. Not the size, but the heart. Because here's what we read. The early church was increasing in numbers. It got really big. You're like, I don't like ch big churches. Well, then you wouldn't like 
the church because it was a large church. And you also wouldn't like heaven very much because there's going to be a whole bunch of Christians there, so you're going to, and it's a big mega church in heaven too. <laughs> it's not the size of the church. It's the heart. Question, was the church in the book of Acts big or was it small? It was both. It was big because they would meet in temples, but it was small because they would meet in homes. It's not either or, guys. It's both and. It's not the size, it's the heart. As our church continues to grow, are we going to love? Are we going to care? Are we going to serve? Are we going to bless? Are we going to be the church? And, And here's what's so fascinating is Peter's basically like, guys, one person can't take care of everybody. But... Everybody can take care of everybody else. When you begin to care for them and they care for him and he cares for her, that's when the church becomes a church. So Peter has to say, like, hey, guys, I love you. It's not my job. It's yours. Now, some people are wondering, well, then what are you going to do, pastor? I'm going to go play golf. <laughs> Just kidding. I couldn't play golf to save my life. Uh, well, luckily, he, he tells us a little bit about the role of a pastor. Here's what he says. He says, it's not right that I should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. I'm going to post that on Twitter later this day and see what kind of reaction I get. <laughs> it's not right. I worked at Chili's for too long. Therefore, brothers... Pick out from among you seven men with good reputations, filled with the spirit and wisdom, point to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And they set these men before the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid hands on them. Now, do you think that there were some people who might have been offended that Peter was no longer the one waiting tables? Hey, where's Peter at? My name's Stephen. Can I help you? I want Peter. Peter's not available right now, but I can help. Where's Peter? He's working on some other stuff, but I'm here to serve. Oh, Peter's too good for us now, huh? Church gets a little bit bigger, and now he don't have time for us. People down here, right? Got a book deal. Think he's writing the Bible. (laughs) Do you think people might get a little offended that they can't just call Peter 24-7 and him drop everything and run to, to take care of whatever their problem is? Probably a little bit, yeah. But listen, there is an unrealistic expectation that people have placed upon their pastors. They expect their pastor to be everything all the time. Pastors are expected to be theologians and therapists, marriage counselors. We lead, we're supposed to teach people how to raise their kids, educators. Pastors are expected to be contractors, be lawyers, understand the legalities of the tax systems here in our country as we lead the church. we got to be contractors to build this new building. We have to raise the funds. We have to manage them correctly. And then on top of that, we have to have great marriages, godly kids, fix your marriage and your kids, (laughs) Sabbath, not get paid too much because they don't want to think too highly of themselves and then somehow still preach a banger sermon on Sunday. It's like, could you do any of those things? No, then you shouldn't expect that out of somebody else. It's going to blow your mind, but listen. Pastors are people too. Like I I have a wife and I have two beautiful, amazing girls. I get one day off a week. I want to spend the time with them. And I I can't lead everything 
which is why we need to raise up more leaders. And I think a lot of times people unknowingly, I don't think anybody is intentional on it, but they expect the pastor just to be their friend. But here's the truth, and I, I love you to death, and I'm going to say this with as much love in my heart that I can, is you have many friends, but you only have one pastor. Like if you call Redemption home, you need to know I'm the only pastor at this church. Like we have a great team, but I'm the only pastor. And you have many friends, dozens of friends, probably more friends than me. And if you don't have one, join a small group and make some. But you got to understand that our relationship is unique, not better. It's just different than any other relationship another person fills in your life. Like we can be friendly. Yes, I'm going to be at that front door after service. I want to know your name. I'll forget it next week, but I'm going to try. I'm going to shake your hand. I'm going to care for you, love for you. I'm going to pray for you. Most of you, I, I text throughout the week. If not, fill out a connect card. I'll get your number. I'll give you mine. I, that doesn't bother me as long as there's boundaries. Because the reality is, is like, I'm not called to be your friend. I'm called to be your pastor. And, and he says this. He says, it's not right for me to wait tables. You, you know why? Because pastors do not make good waiters. What's the goal of a waiter? To give you what you want. That's not a pastor's job. My, my job, this ain't, this ain't Burger King. You can't have it your way. This is Christ is the king. He gets it his way. And, and so you need me to be your pastor. Like we understand as parents, if you really want to screw up your kids, be their friends. Because your kids don't need more friends. They need a mom. We understand this at work, that when an employer gets a little too friendly with an employee, somebody's calling HR, <laughs> right? Or, or we see this, do you want your therapist to be your friend? No. Then why would you expect that from, from me? So what is, the, what is the role of a pastor? What role does the pastor play in my life? Well, Peter says there's, there's three things, or the apostles teach us three things here. First is to preach. Number two is to pray. Like, God writes my job description, and you know what it is? To preach the word. That, that's my job. My job is to study the word and to preach the word. You know why? Because that's what grows the church. The church is not a humanitarian organization. It's not a charity. It's not a nonprofit. What is a church? A church is a church. And what do we do? We preach. We preach the gospel, and as the gospel goes out, lives are changed. We see that, that hearts are restored. We see the lost are saved. We see the gospel advance. We see the kingdom grow. That's what a church does. It preaches. And so here's my commitment to you. i got about 30 years left in the tank here, and I've said it since the beginning. My goal is to preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. And so whenever I retire and I close the Bible for the final time and I will stand here, just like Paul said to the Ephesian elders, I did not fail to preach to you the full counsel of the word of God. That's my goal. I'm gonna preach, I'm gonna preach the Bible every Sunday. You're gonna get it. But number two, he says, it's not right for me to wait tables because then I won't have time to pray. You're like, well, pastor, how much time do you need to pray? I need more time than I currently have. We'll say, well, why does the pastor need to pray? Like, you need me praying. Because how am I to lead the church if I can't listen to God? Because we need, we need to be led by God. Like, Jesus is the senior pastor. Like, this is his church. I, I got to listen to him so that way I can lead the church well. And, and here's the most terrifying thing. It's a quote from A.W. Tozer, and it haunts me. A pastor who isn't praying, isn't preaching, he's performing. Like, here's the most terrifying thing. And I'm trying to, like, spill my guts on this stage and be as vulnerable in front of you as I can. I can preach a sermon without praying about it. I can. Like, I'm not, like, the best at this, but I'm actually pretty good. And, and here's what I've learned is that's terrifying because then I would be preaching out of my flesh and not out of my spirit. I'd be preaching out of my gifting and not out of the anointing. And I could preach a sermon that is theologically correct but biblically wrong because my heart is not in the right place. 
that should terrify you. Like you should be like, pastor, <laughs> you go, go pray again? And I love this church because prayer is such a priority for us. On first Wednesdays, the church prays. But also, did you know that on first Wednesdays, for the first three and a half hours of our workday, the entire staff is down here in the altars having their own prayer meeting too? I love, I love it. But that's my job is to preach and to pray. But then he adds something else that's very interesting. And, and, and you almost miss it if you don't pay attention. And it's number three is to pivot. Because as a church grows, things change. And the leader needs to be able to recognize that to make the proper adjustments to solve the problem. And so what does he do? He, he begins to, to pivot the organization of the church. One person can't do everything. Twelve people, it's a little bit better, but it can't do everything. So we need to change the organizational structure. We need to get some more leaders in here. We need to release more volunteers. And so that way we can begin to do the work of the ministry. And then we can devote ourselves to the ministry of the word. So he begins to, to pivot to make the necessary changes. And here's what people say. People don't like change, but that's not true. People love change. You know, whenever you get a haircut, you come out and you're like, look, it's like, you changed. Like, I love it. It's great. Right? You changed clothes this morning. Thank you for not wearing what you wore yesterday. I like change. I like the fact that you changed, right? People love change. They just don't like the way that we try to make change happen. But as, as a leader, we have to know how to, to lead, and that involves change. So, so Peter pivots because he realizes, guys, we've made, we got a problem, and we have to solve it. Now, here's my question for you. When we read through this text, was Peter in sin because of the problem that they had? Were the apostles in sin because the Hellenists were being neglected? Is that a sin issue? No, it's a leadership issue. Like there's this religious spirit all across America in churches today where it says, if a leader fails, they're in sin. That's not the case. Sometimes people fail because they're people. And they make mistakes, just like you do. But when you're a hammer, you think everything's nails. And you just walk around, and you're just like, repent, 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 repent. The leaders failed. Sin. Sometimes it's sin. And yeah, they need to repent. And you can trust the elders and the overseers to sort that out. But sometimes the church fails because the leaders are humans, and they make mistakes. And here's what we need to know is we repent of sins, but we learn from mistakes. Like my daughter's three. The other day she spilt milk when she was uh, making a bowl of cereal. And she, she got scared because she thought she was going to get in trouble, and so she, she, she ran away. I had to go get her, and I said, baby, come here. And I sat her down, and here's what I always do. I always get down. I level with her, and I say, who am I? You're my dad, who loves you, mom. Okay, great. <laughs> I said, do we get in trouble for mistakes? She said, no. I said, what do we do? We, we learn from them. So we can correct them, fix them, so the way it doesn't happen again. God's a father. He loves us the way that a dad loves his kids, and God doesn't punish us for making mistakes. He sent Jesus to die for our sins. And so when we get something wrong, we need to learn from it, and we grow. Y'all and us and we and everybody else got to be able to show grace to people, even those who are in positions of leadership. Because you wouldn't like it if everybody walked around and pointed out all your problems all the time, would you? No? So then we, we shouldn't expect the same thing from others as well. We have to be gracious. Because the reality is this, guys, listen. I've failed. I've made some mistakes pastoring this church. And I'm going to make more. And I'm not going to be perfect. Like one of the biggest failures that I've done is I tried to 
started a capital campaign three years ago called Be Bold. And I felt, God, it's time for us to, to buy a building and to raise the money and to move. And I stood up here and I cast this big vision. And then I realized it wasn't going to be successful. And so as everybody's getting ready to stand here and make their pledges, I stood and I said, hey, guys, listen, I was in God's will, but I was not in God's timing. I got ahead of God. Don't give to the church. What pastor would say something like that, right? Because I realized, like, I made a mistake. So we took the year, we got some learning, and we spent some time growing. We met some new leaders. We put a plan in place. And then this year, we launched what we call Multiply. And within five months, you guys committed not just three, but 3.3 million. And the giving already cash reserves is over $500,000 towards this. Isn't that amazing? I made a mistake, and I've made dozens more, and I'm going to make even more in the future. Now, that doesn't mean that we excuse it. It means we grow from it. It means we learn from it. It means we solve the problem so we can continue to see God move. So what we've seen so far is this. We've seen the, we've seen the problem. We've seen the plan. We've seen the pasture. Number four, what we're going to see is the product. Well, what, what happens after all of this? Well, here's how the story continues. It says this in verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase. Praise God. The number of disciples, they multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and many of the priests became obedient to the faith. There was a problem. They came up with a plan. They raised up some leaders, and then what happened? More people met Jesus. The church kept growing. More people get baptized. More people are being saved. More people are being healed. More people are being delivered. More addictions are being broken. More lives are being changed. The baptism is full again. Praise God. The church grew again. Why? Because there was a problem, but the people became the solution. So if you come to the church and you're like, there's problems. I would say, I know. What are we going to do about it? Because maybe God showed you the problem so that way you can be a part of the solution. If you see the need, then be one to step up and help meet that need. Because the truth is, guys, this is that no church is perfect because nobody is perfect. And we're going to make mistakes and we're going to learn from them, and we're going to grow from them, and we're going to fix them, and we're going to make some more mistakes. Every ministry here at Redemption was born out of a mistake or a problem, which ultimately became an opportunity. We noticed that people were meeting Jesus, but they were still unable to let go of the junk in their past. So we created freedom. We, we realized that on Sunday mornings, the altars were too full and with multiple services, we didn't have time to pray for everybody. So we changed first Wednesday prayer night to where then there was extended altar ministry at the end. Every problem is an opportunity for ministry. But what we have to recognize is that God never intended the church to be one man on a stage. He always intended a church to be you and me doing life together. Church was never meant to be about a service. It was meant about people learning to serve. God doesn't desire Sunday to be a moment, but rather it to be the beginning of a movement. Because if what happens in this room stays in this room, guys, it will die in this room. But when you all of a sudden realize, I don't go to church. I am the church. And the same way that God has called them is the same way that God is calling me. Here's what you, you got to understand, guys. I say this all the time. Is the church is not built on the talents of the few, but on the sacrifices of the many. Listen, I don't have the most important job in this church. 
You know that, right? Like, I do what I do, you do what you do, and God does what he does. I don't have the most important job in this church. Like, please, whatever you do, don't put me on a pedestal because I'll fall off. Put me on your prayer list and keep lifting me up. I don't have the most important job in this church. I tell you this all the time. Sometimes so much that I get sick of saying it, which means you're just now starting to hear it. Who has the most important job in this church? You do. You will reach more people with your life than I ever could because people have to come here to listen to me, but you can go to them at your work, at your job, your kids, your brother, your sister. You can reach more people through your life than you will ever, than I will ever get the opportunity to on a Sunday morning. I don't have the most important job here. My job is to preach the Bible. Your job is to reach people. And when I do my job well, you do your job better. Do you see how this works? The church was never meant to be an event or a program or 90 minutes on a Sunday morning. The church was always meant to be a family. It was always meant to be an army. It was always meant to be you and me together. That's what a church is. And the more people who join, the more problems we're going to have. You know why? Because you've got problems. We love you anyway. And no, guys, listen, the church will never be perfect. But with you, we can get better. We'll never be perfect. But here's what we can be. We can be better. We can get better. We can learn. We can fix mistakes. We can be gracious to others. And we can grow through it. This is the gospel message. Raise your hand if you're perfect. Jesus was perfect in your place. Jesus lived the life you never could live, died the death that you deserve, so that way you can be forgiven. And how many of you are so glad that Jesus was perfect in our place? And so because Jesus has shown us grace, we should show grace to one another. We're never going to be perfect, but together we can be better. And the only way we can be better is if we all do it together.